The reading of the word is from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and return to her home. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. The, uh, the German pastor and theologian and uh, Christian martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, called these words uh, by Mary in Luke chapter 1, which we know is the Magnificat. He, calls, he, he said this about them. He said uh, that they are the most passionate the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. Why? Well, because Mary is not describing some intimate, sweet passing event that just kind of happens and then we just kind of move on with everything else in our world. She's describing an event that changes everything. That changes everything about our world as a whole, but it also changes everything about your reality, even if you don't yet believe that is true. Because Mary is describing for us a new order. Mary is describing for us even a, a new race of people, a new government, and especially a new king. A God who comes down for his people, a God who is not distant, a God who is not silent, but a God who is there, a God who is with us. Remember, Mary's song is a thematic exposition of who God is from the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. It's not just one verse that she pulls out of its context, but she gives you this this grand biblical overview of who God is, one, but also what God is doing for us in his son, Jesus Christ, who we celebrate every, every single Christmas, every year. And she uses the scriptures to describe the real God to us. I'm sure for a lot of us, we have uh, a lot of ideas about who God is, and maybe that's from the kind of cultural uh, depictions of God, and so you've kind of taken those on in your own brain, or maybe you've, you've even developed a, a God-like figure to worship in your own heart, and so you kind of pick and choose from varying different religions and different kind of philosophies, and you say, this is my God, or maybe, maybe even you've picked up this wrong image of God uh, from your parents or from your grandparents. One author has said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, 
because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And so if we don't like what the God of the Bible says, or we don't like how he is, or we don't like his, his laws and his statutes, uh, we just go to the God that we've invented. Because that God allows everything. Well, Mary is here in this part of the story of God, in Luke chapter 1, to give you the true and better image of God. A, a God who is praiseworthy. A God who is, who is just in every way. A God who is merciful to all of his creation. Even as we sit here this morning. You can't say this about the gods of this world. You can. They are never just. They are never merciful. They are never deserving of any sort of praise. Uh, They are never satisfied. Think about it. If you are guilty of having uh, having a God built up in your own mind and in your own heart even, is it ever satisfied? Or is it always wanting more from you? And I'm sure that's exhausting. But our God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But most importantly, these gods that we have worshipped and these gods that we have developed are gods that can never save you from your sin. They are inadequate to do so. But the God of the Bible, however, has gone out of his way to save you so that he can be with you again. God just didn't, he didn't just save us and just say, all right, I've, I've, I have rescued you and now you're on your own. No, God saves us by coming to us because God wants to be with you. And so he has invented a way for you to come to him, to be in right relationship with him again, to be at peace with him again. Tim Keller said, the founders of every major religion said, I'll show you how to find God. Jesus said, I am God who has come to find you. And that's what we celebrate during this Advent season. That's what we are looking at when this newborn babe has come to earth. That is Jesus coming to find you. And he's come up with the plan that allows for both justice to be had upon your sin, because that has to happen, and at the very same time allows you to receive mercy from him. And that happens only through Christ. So how does that happen? What happens in two ways. One is that he prepares us for it. And second, he leads us into it. So he prepares us and he leads us. So the first one is that he prepares us. And so if you still have your finger in uh, the the Bible there uh, in Isaiah 61, turn there with me because we'll pretty much be spending the, the rest of the time in Isaiah 61 verse 10. Because this is one of the one of the verses that Mary actually is 
uh, is hinting toward in her Magnificat in, in verse 47. And to understand Mary's full context here, we have to, we have to go to the passage in which she is quoting, uh, which is Isaiah 61.10. We read it in its entirety a little bit earlier in the service. But this is what Isaiah 61 verse 10 says. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now, hearing that in its fuller context shows us that Mary is not just singing about some random day or some random time. She is actually singing about and rejoicing in a wedding day. Isaiah calls it the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus announces this day in one of his first encounters in the synagogue when he's teaching in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this day that Mary is rejoicing in and her Magnificat is not just any old day. It is the day. The Apostle Paul describes it in Galatians 4 in this way. He says, but when the set time had fully come, what did he do? God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So there's a specific time and a specific day that was planned out before, before all of eternity passed and before all of creation came in, into being that God had set in the timeline of this world. Why? Why did Jesus come in this particular way at this particular time? Well, it's to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. The wedding day is here, and it's Christ who prepares us for it. So how is he doing this? Well, Isaiah says, by clothing you with the garments of salvation and covering you with the robe of righteousness. That's how Jesus is getting you ready for this day. That's how Jesus is preparing you. He is clothing you with the garments of salvation. He is covering you with the robe of righteousness. And this is why both Isaiah and Mary rejoice. The idea of clothing, and the reason why they rejoice is because the idea of, of clothing and covering, those, those two terms, ter should turn our attention back to directly after the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember that, God, uh, man and woman were created and they were naked and they were not ashamed. That's how they walked around. No shame at whatsoever. But then after the fall, they immediately understand their nakedness and immediately fall into shame. 
And so they, they begin to shamefully uh, make these, these clothings. You can, you can almost imagine them just ripping off uh, anything uh, around just to cover themselves because they are afraid and they are shameful. And so when God makes his way back to them, he finds them with these makeshift clothing, clothing barely covering themselves. They are exposed for all the world to see. Every blemish, every now mark of sin is on them, and they are standing in the shame of that sin. And yet God in his grace, which has to be the most disruptive and one of the saddest days of all creation, God in his grace clothes them. Genesis 3.21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And I know we've seen these kind of depicted in our uh, children's uh, Bibles that are just just sometimes poorly written and poorly illustrated. Um, and they're just walking around with like a, a, fur, you know, a fur coat. They just kind of cover themselves up like that. I, I, I'm pretty sure that, that God clothed them in beautiful attire, useful attire in every way because you know what? He did not stop loving them when they fell. And so he, out of his grace, he closed them. Another way we could say it, using the language of Isaiah uh, 61 and the language of Mary, is that he closed them in righteousness. He closed them with his grace. And this same imagery is being used here in Isaiah 61, except God is not sending them out of the garden here. He's preparing them for their wedding day. He's adorning them in the most beautiful garments imaginable. Now, the average uh, American wedding costs between $19,000 and $32,000. So, we're in the midst of planning a wedding for one of our daughters. It is nowhere near that amount, sorry to say. Um, I'm sure my daughter could spend $32,000, um, but we're not doing that. But the most expensive wedding to date, to date, took place in 1981. A lot of you probably will remember this. Uh, was between uh, Prince Charles and Princess Diana. Their wedding in 1981 costs $110 million. $110 million. There is not another wedding that comes even remotely close to that particular wedding. Princess Diana's wedding gown was covered in 10,000 pearls and had a 25-foot train, and she was chauffeured in a glass coach like a princess should be from her place to the cathedral, to the church that day. $110 million. Why do people do this? Why do we spend so much time and effort and money on a wedding day? One day, and then it's gone. Why do we do that? Well, I think some of it now we have to, to factor in sin to this equation um, is, is that we just, we're self-serving and we just want people to look at us. And I'm sure some of that is involved, but just kind of uh, assuming the best about every bride in the world 
and every groom is the reason we do this, the reason we put so much time and effort and money is because we want to be prepared as we are presented before our future husband or our future wife. We want the celebration to be huge. We, we want it to be unforgettable. We want as many friends and as many family members around to celebrate. We want good food, food to, to be had there. We want good drink to be available. We don't want any of it to run out. We want everything to go right. We want the bride to be beautiful and the groom to be handsome. We want the service to go perfectly. Because this is the day. A day that is unlike any other day. But God's preparations are far superior than the most expensive and elaborate wedding day. Prince Charles and Princess Diana can hold nothing to the wedding day of God and his bride. His preparations make any preparations that we attempt look cheap and imitation. Because his preparations make the church, the bride of Christ, the most amazing sight before a watching world. Isaiah 61 verse 11 tells us of of what kind of impact this day has upon the world. Isaiah writes, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up, not just before the church, not just before Christians, but before all the nations. Looking forward to that day in Revelation when the second advent has been fulfilled in every tongue, in every tribe, in every nation will proclaim the glory of God and bow the knee to King Jesus. That is what this day does. So the church is a people adorned from head to toe in the righteousness of Christ. A people layered with God's salvation. Uh, So no more shame needs to be experienced. No more hiding needs to be had because he's the one who draws you out and then covers you in a way that can never be uncovered again. So God prepares his people for this great day, but he also leads us into it. Remember, he doesn't doesn't leave us. We don't go at it alone. He's with us. He never stops being with us. He never stops being Emmanuel, God with us. So as a pastor, I've done my share of weddings, and I can tell you, uh, the moment before, I'm always with the groom. I'm never with the bride at that particular time, because they're strong. They can handle this. They're not over there crying, you know, in my arm. Not like anybody was doing this recently, but, um, but the groom is nervous, very nervous, pacing, um, you know, saying things they wouldn't normally say. All of those things are happening. Emotions are running high. But I can tell you, the moment after everything has been said and done is probably the greatest moment of joy and relief for the groom because of all of that. And husbands, if you can remember that moment, you would agree 
when you said your vows and you kissed your bride and you walked back down that aisle with her on your arm, what you were doing is you were declaring to the world, she is mine. And I always say this when I've, I've had this question been asked to me a number of times um, by uh, you know, uh, people who are looking towards marriage or they're newly engaged and they ask me, how do you know it's God's will for me to marry this woman or to marry this man? And I said, when you say I do, that's when you'll know. Because now she's yours. Now he's yours. You are now one. And, and, and as you do this, husbands, you are, you are not only just kind of walking down the aisle and that's kind of like, it's, you know, this was the day and it's, and it's said and done, but you are now leading her into this life of earthly union together with you. That is now your role. And, and in similar fashion, Christ does the same for you and me but way more extravagantly because, because he's not only leading us in this earthly union, but he's leading us in a heavenly union as well. And as one commentator put it, the Messiah himself will lead his people into the romance of eternal salvation. Meaning through the incarnation, which is what we celebrate and remember at Christmas time, the incarnation is God becoming human. God putting on flesh and he's coming to be with us. Through the incarnation, what God is doing is he is clearing the path for us. The scriptures call Jesus our forerunner. He goes before us and he is clearing the path for us to God. So what this means, because Jesus has cleared the path, there are no hoops to jump through to get to God. There, there are no boxes to check to be approved by God. There are no rules to keep to earn God's favor and have him turn towards you. You don't even have to pack or get dressed. Christ does this all for you. He is your salvation. And his salvation is, is multifaceted. It's multilayered. Um, it's, it's, it's not a get out of hell free card. And if you think it's such, you haven't truly experienced a true biblical conversion. Because it's way more than that. This is how Mary sings about it. He looks on the humble estate of his servant. He has done great things for you. He has appointed you his mercy. He has administered justice on your behalf. <laughs> he has kept his promise to you and given you its benefits. So that's not just Mary singing that to herself and saying, this is true about me because I'm the one giving birth to the very Son of God, which makes me extra special and more special than anybody else in the entire world. But she's saying this about us as well. There's a scene, I'm sure some of you have watched this movie this Christmas, along with many other movies. Um, but there's a scene in the movie, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, 
um, that's really eye-opening. And you might miss because the Grinch is sort of this, uh, you know, this central character. He's, you know, he's green, and you can't miss him. And so he's there, and he's very flamboyant about everything. You know, he hates Christmas. Um, he has his reasonings. He has deep reasonings for, for hating Christmas and all of that. And so you might miss this part um, because it's not just the Grinch that has changed that is one of the most important parts of the movie, but by the end of the movie, you notice that the Who's have changed as well. And if you notice, at least in the Jim Carrey version, they do a great job of depicting that the Who's are, are running here and there, and they're getting all their Christmas gifts and, and, and piling them up in their house, and the, all their decorations are had out, and they're extravagant and lush, and, and everybody is loving this time. But it, it takes everything being stripped away from them by the Grinch to realize what Christmas is supposed to be about in their little Whoville world. And so what God is doing for us during the Advent season, during this Christmas season, is he is helping us to realign our hearts back to his grace and mercy. To show that if if all was stripped away from, from you during this particular time, would you still sing of God's goodness? And I'm not just speaking about Christmas presents and, or, or the lights that we put up or the Christmas trees or anything like that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about physical things like Job that had everything stripped away from him. Would you still sing of God's goodness? Would you still sing of his mercy if your plans didn't go accordingly? If your prayers were not answered in the way that you wanted them to be answered? Would you still sing of his justice? Even when things might feel unjust towards you? Would you still sing of his grace? Would you still sing of his salvation? So I would encourage you, just in closing here, This afternoon, it's Christmas Eve, so this afternoon and tomorrow, tomorrow morning, to just take a moment, to take a moment before all things get hectic and you start running around here and there to different family members' houses and you're ripping open presents and you're enjoying good food and good drink and all those things, before all gets hectic, to pause, read the scriptures, either alone or or with your family, if you have a family. Pray over your day and set your hearts in the right direction so that you would be reminded to sing of the goodness of God, your Savior, your salvation, your righteousness, Emmanuel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, our God in heaven who has made a way for us to get back to you, who is the one who brings peace and love and joy to this world through Christ. 
that it is not anything in us that has made you move in that particular way. But you, because you long to be with us, because you long to be our Emmanuel, you have done this for us. And so God, I pray, even as we, as we move out of this place uh, this afternoon, that we would set our hearts right with you, that we would, that we would take time in these next moments to focus our hearts on you and what you have accomplished for us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.